The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest, our poetry is bad edition. It's Wednesday, September 11th, 2019. On today's show, American Factory was a big winner at Sundance. It's now a documentary on Netflix. It's also notable for being the first one distributed by Barack and Michelle Obama. Uh, in addition to all that, it's a remarkable document of the fate of the American experiment in the age of a global economy. It's a, it's an amazing movie. And then Lana Del Rey has come a long way since being written off as a rich kid in a sued, a manufactured pop sensation. Her new record, Norman Fucking Rockwell, is a triumph of both attitude and substance. And finally, get thee to a completed manuscript in which Dana returns from her stint at a nunnery. Joining me today is Julia Turner, who is a deputy managing editor of the LA Times. Hey, Julia. Hello, hello. Uh, and of course, Dana Stevens, the film critic for Slate Magazine, has returned. Dana, hey. <laughs> hello, blessings, Stephen. Blessings on you. <laughs> oh, my God. All right. Now, is it really true when you put one of those habits on, you can fly? <laughs> We will oh get God, there, is this but the whole episode just going to be like bad, disrespectful nun jokes. I have an even worse joke if you want to hear it. You ready? Sure. Oh, God. Okay. Did you hear the one about the factory documentary? It's riveting. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back to civilization, Dana. <laughs> this is what the big sorry, city slickers is... are like. <laughs> I'm, just ex- I'm just excited to see Dana. My tail is wagging. In 2014, a Chinese autoglass company, Fuyao, bought up a shuttered GM factory in Dayton, Ohio. This was, as I understand it from watching the documentary, part public relations ploy, part deadly earnest investment uh, in the American economy. Anyway, it brought together Chinese management philosophies with an American workforce, though I should say not every manager in the film is Chinese and not every worker is American. There's a mingling of both. But in the commingling of norms and expectations that followed, there was a lot of resultant soaring revenue rhetoric in front of the press uh, and other public figures and a lot of culture classes clashes uh, 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 playing out on the factory floor. A documentary crew was on hand to film the whole thing from 1,200 hours of footage. They culled it down to an elegantly edited two-hour feature film. It won the documentary prize at Sundance, and it's now the first release, as I indicated, for Higher Ground Productions, the production company started by the Obamas and uh, Probably more importantly, it's directed by documentarian veterans Stephen Bognar and Julia Reichert. Let's uh, let's listen to a clip. Thank you guys very much. You don't know how important this is to Fuyao and to the chairman. The plant looks great. These people are coming here to see something that they never in their lifetime thought would happen. You have given hope and you have given life to a community that was desolate. This is one of the greatest projects in the history of the United States. So be proud and most importantly, have fun. Two lands, the bridge yeah. brings us together. And uh, the new core, how to say new? The bond. The bond, bond, yeah, bond. Bond, yes, bond. All right, Dana, well, let me start with you. This is uh, this is quite a remarkable movie. It sort of drops you down in the middle of a Springsteen song and, and you know, I mean, metaphorically and then uh grows out its narrative from there it's a pretty humanist uh and moving document what did you make of it 
Yeah, much different than I expected this movie. I mean, if if you think that you know what this movie is about is all the more reason to seek it out and watch it. Not too hard to seek it out since it's currently on Netflix and in theaters um, because it was it to me brought something I had never seen in a documentary about the American working class before. I mean, Michael Moore apparently is a fan of this movie and a fan of Reichert and Bognar. And there are elements of Michael Moore in the fact that it is a movie that focuses on the lives of blue collar Americans in a factory town. But because of the way the camera pulls out to look at this globalization process, to me, it, it brought something entirely new, right? I mean, we think of globalization as something that happens in the other direction, that there's something out there in the world happening in other countries that's bringing products to us, right? iPhones being made in China, et cetera. But the idea that the American workforce would start to be I mean, colonized is a strong word, but there are parts of this documentary where it applies, sort of colonized by this uh, Chinese model of capitalism that's also communism. I mean, it's just it, it it's really out there. Some of the cultural clash that happens in it. Yet I think the filmmakers do a, a really good job at being empathetic to both points of view. They started out, in fact, I think, wanting more to focus on the American workers and what the process of having their factory bought by a Chinese capitalist does to them. Um, but since a lot of Chinese workers also came over, not quite as many, I think that it's, it's a primarily American staffed factory, but there are these Chinese workers who were brought over. And so their process of cultural assimilation becomes part of the documentary too. And uh, there's a lot of moods in this documentary. I mean, the first hour, 45 minutes is sort of soaringly optimistic as a depressed factory town makes itself over. And then all kinds of uh, troubles rear their head as, for example, um, you know, unionization is frowned on by the Chinese management and the UAW starts to organize. And I won't spoil it, but it goes to some unexpected places. Mm -hmm. Julia, uh, I read this as an extremely open-minded, as I think Dana does, open-minded and agnostic documentary. The cameras were just there. Uh, and in the editing of this remarkable material, it doesn't strike me as tendentious at all. It feels like we really saw what really happened in that factory. Um, how did you feel? Yeah, I loved this. I mean, as you guys know, often documentaries get my journalism antennae twitching nervously, and I felt that I really trusted the rigor of these journalists as storytellers and uh, their patience and the access they got to see inside everything to see. I mean, just as a matter, a technical matter, you know, the, the what is happening on the factory floor footage, I think that is just like a genre of footage that people love and love to watch. It's if you, if you are a white collar worker or other kind of worker who does not see what happens on a factory floor, just watching like big sheets of glass go here and there and arms and things go to and fro. Like it's just very visually, um, aesthetically interesting as a base level. And then to, to layer on top of that, spending so much sincere, perceptive time with everyone from the kind of capitalist communist boss of this American enterprise who is prone to saying uh, sort of startlingly generalized things about the quality of the American worker of the sort that, of course, American capitalists have said about various foreign workforces for years and years and years um, to literally be like being inside of union busting meetings where managers are talking about illegal activities uh, to, you know, being inside the homes of um, both American workers and Chinese workers as they think about what work 
means now globally, I thought it was stunning. I really thought it was just an extraordinary document and something that's really worth everybody spending time watching. I mean, it was it was years in the making, and you really feel that watching it, that they didn't go in with a set idea and then explore that idea. They allowed things to happen and then tried to figure out what those things were on the ground. Yeah, I mean, I just want to, you know, rhyme completely with what both of you said. I mean, this is one of those movies I'm going to push on everybody that I, I know. It's, I think, both a political document and a really humanist one, and it's aesthetically quite beautiful. Um it's just a it's just a remarkable film. I it just, to begin with the good news, there's there's one really successful relationship that I wouldn't say is at the heart of the movie exactly, but it's very near the heart of the movie between I believe his name is Wang He, uh, a Chinese worker who's been brought over to the uh, factory, who's working very very side by side with an American counterpart, who himself in some class you know I mean stereotypical ways could not be more American uh he rides Harleys he likes guns uh he's a guy's guy uh it culminates not culminates but early on you find out that they've become close personally enough for the American to invite Wang He over to for Thanksgiving and his family that friendship is a testimony to how given an economic goal in an organized setting how pragmatism can lead to brotherhood, right? How have two people working towards the same goal in a completely non, you know, relatively non ideological way, um, with with the simple pragmatic goal of getting a certain job done efficiently, can result in something like a form of human brotherhood. I thought that was a really beautiful gesture on the part of a documentary that otherwise I think makes one feel quite jaundiced. Uh, towards the global economy, so so I, I just pulling the camera out a little bit, you know that if you'll permit a short didactic lecture, like the Chinese are to the twenty first century, what the United States had been to the nineteenth century, which is a mega economy growing up very very fast and very chaotically, and playing catch up to the rest of the developed world, um, and um, and I think that that raises the question of why, if that's the case. You now have Chinese and labor uh, labor and management techniques coming to the United States, right? If we're sort of, in some respects, important economic respects, two centuries ahead of what, where the Chinese are, um, uh, you know, what political set of circumstances have, have have allowed that transfer to happen? What this movie does so beautifully is it puts flesh and blood and actual human experience to a set of hazily formed abstractions that are only starting to make sense to us, and it helps bring those into focus. I mean, we effectively have achieved a bilateral economic union with another mega economy with absolutely no political union overseeing the whole thing, right? So you have a market relationship without a social contract. And what I think this movie does so beautifully is it shows what the human cost of that absence of a social contract is, who that benefits precisely, and to what lengths those people, those winners, are going to go to to make absolutely sure that the social contract in the form of unionism does not reassert itself. And so in that sense, it's agnostic and a humanistic movie. I don't think that they went in with a point of view, but you cannot exit watching this movie without a point of view. And a lot of, I think, a lot of political anger, Dana. 
Yeah, I mean, just one, you know, sort of fact underlying, a, a statistic underlying everything you just said is that very early in the movie, I think it may be the first interview they do, a woman who previously worked at the GM factory that was in that space and is now at the Fuyao factory, this Chinese glass factory that inhabits the same space, is making less than half of what she made her entire life before. And, you know, so she's saying, you know, I used to be able to buy sneakers for my kids without thinking about it. Now I have to think about it. I mean, all of these people know that they're on a permanent slide of down, not even slide. They've just gone down a peg in in their social mobility and are going to stay there because that's how the world economy works now. And that is just a very bleak fact to kick off the documentary with. No matter how what connections may happen among those workers, they're all still completely under the thumb of these you know global mega capitalists flying around in private jets who are another subject of the documentary. Steve, I love your analogy about the 19th century. I mean, that's what's so uncanny about the documentary and part of why I would press it on everybody is that it's startling and surprising. And one of the things that's surprising is you realize, uh, for the last however many decades, uh, Americans have uh, moved manufacturing overseas. American companies have moved manufacturing overseas because essentially you can reach a 19th century workforce there who are you know, cheaper, less regulated, et cetera. Um, And what we see here is the Chinese export of a 19th century model of industrialism, of sort of a robber baron or capitalist or someone whose desire to exploit that workforce is just bald and not um, covered in all of the language that modern American industrialists have learned to say for the most part so that they don't sound like Gilded Age robber barons. Well, right. It's because the it's because the oligopolists, the communist oligopolists in China share a political goal with their oligopolistic counterparts in the United States, which is to wipe out that history of the 20th century, which was in the direction of labor rights as secured through collective, you know, bargaining. You know, I mean, it's like all of these negative stereotypes that they're piling on the American workforce are a consequence of Americans having fought their way out of wage slavery, fought, like fought and died their way out of wage slavery. And two overclasses from two separate cultures have coordinated in order to wipe that history clean, resupplied the American industrial labor force with jobs at half to a third of the wages and zero of the benefits that they were used to uh, getting, and then are, are offended when the American worker doesn't receive that bargain with, you know, that fresh, shitty bargain with gratitude. Um, I just want to point to one specific moment in the movie that really, really got to me. A guy walks through the factory. I mean, this is a very anti-union shop that they've set up. I mean, they are going to go to any lengths they can to destroy the possibility of a, a union. And this guy just walks through the factory floor with a big sign saying, vote yes for the union, a UAW guy, I guess. And of course, he's escorted out as quickly as possible by security. And as he's getting into his car, he turns to the camera and says, sometimes you got to be Sally Field and you just want to bawl your eyes out for how much you love this country. I mean, the other thing I would say about that Norma Ray moment is that I felt less stirred than sort of despairing. And it, it caused me to sort of zoom out and think about the broader global economy and the fact that in general, the price of goods is so depressed and our expectation for how much any consumer good costs is so low, in part because of all the exportation of manufacturing that American companies have done, that the market for auto glass, you know, it's it, it didn't strike me as necessarily an irrational response to the market for 
um, this Chinese company to want to be making glass as cheap as they were making it and to feel that they couldn't possibly pay what the UAW had negotiated at the GM plant, you know, 30 odd years ago in a different economic environment, which is not to say, you know, I mean, basically, to me, the takeaway is our goods shouldn't be so cheap, and we should have fewer of them, which would be better for the environment as well. But the fundamental one thing I really liked about the documentary is that as startling as some of the pronouncements of the Fuya chairman were, they also seem like responses to forces beyond his control that seem kind of glacial and tragic and huge and are very keenly observed here. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And one of the things I found moving about that guy turning to the camera and saying that about Sally Field is that in part, this is a documentary about Americans incorrigible sense that they have a right to individual personality, right? Like that's implicit in the pursuit of happiness and they're only willing to efface it so much in favor of some you know, ideal of efficiency. Um, and the documentary leaves you with this question is when all of this is replaced by robots, which is imminent, how and where is that right to personality going to assert itself? But anyway, on that note, it's uh, called American Factory. It is a really, really, really good movie. And then I think a kind of urgent one. So we hope you watch it and uh, tell us what you thought of it. All right, moving on. All right. Well, before we go any further, this is uh, where we usually talk about our business. I'm sure we have some. Dana, what, what's up? Yes, Steve, we have a very special, exciting announcement, which is that we are going west this fall. Thanks in part to your strong responses when we threw out the question to listeners, if you wanted us to come, we will be in L.A. and then later in Vancouver this November. That's going to be November 13th for the L.A. show, November 15th for the Vancouver show. Uh not all the information is available or the tickets yet, so we will give you more as we get it. But reserve those dates if you live in or near one of those towns and want to come hear us live. And we'll let you know when the tickets are available and locations, et cetera, very soon. You can find out more information at slate.com slash live. Can I just say something very quickly? Sure. The good people of Vancouver guaranteed us a sellout. <laughs> that seems very boastful. <laughs> I can already see the Trump capacity thin milling crowd as you say those words. <laughs> I, I'm just saying the pressure's not on me, Vancouver. The pressure's on you. I feel like just from the fact that Vancouver came out for me to buy that book I wanted from McLeod's, I mean, those people alone, the people who offered to buy me the book will fill our show. It was crazy. What a nice response that Maybe got, we so. should just tell everybody to go buy you a book and then they'll show up and we'll be like, surprise, we're doing Fake a out. show. <laughs> And the only other business, Steve, is that in Slate Plus today, we are going to be talking about jumping off of our last topic, which is just kind of you guys debriefing me about my month at the monastery. We are going to talk about fantasy residencies, and we're each going to compose if we could go anywhere for a month to work on our own thing. Where would we go, and what would we work on, and what would it be like? Ooh, yeah. I got some answers. That's a good one. So if you want to hear that segment and other segments like it, you can, of course, sign up for Slate Plus, our membership program, for just $35 for your first year. And that helps us cover the cost of producing our show and so many other Slate podcasts and gives you, in return, extended ad-free versions of those shows and many other wonderful benefits. So if you want to try to support the Culture Gab Fest, go to slate.com slash culture plus and join Slate Plus. Lana Del Rey was born Elizabeth Grant, a New York City rich kid with a dream 
to turn herself into a torch-singing heroine from a trashy SoCal noir. At first, though everyone was intrigued, no one was really buying it, as I remember, but now five records in, she has conquered everyone's heart, or this being 2019, the hole where everyone's heart is supposed to be. NFW, or in its NSFW title, Norman fucking Rockwell, is a shimmery and hypnotic set of songs. It's arch and utterly sincere at the same time. Somehow, that's kind of the Lana Del Rey thing, I I guess. Um, Anyway, what can I say? I think this is a brilliant album. I put it on with my um, two daughters in the car. We drove and listened to it in stunned silence. Um, What a record. Let's listen to a clip. But I don't get bored, I just see it through Why wait for the best when I could have you You Cause you're just a man It's just what you do All right, well, we're doing something unusual. We're doing back-to-back Carl Wilson uh, guest uh, uh, segments. You've returned to talk about Lana Del Rey. Of course, this is a compare and contrast conceit in part. But before we get there, talk a little bit about this this record. Yeah, hi, it's me, your little Toronto bitch. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, this record, like the anticipation for this record has been building up for about a year since she started putting out advanced tracks. Um, and some of the things that came out in advance, I immediately started feeling that she'd kind of reached a new level in her songwriting, um, just a, a level of clarity and a kind of pulled back on the manneredness um, in a way that really got my attention in ways that really waxed and waned over the course of her, her six albums. Um, and listening to this record, it's interesting. It's definitely a culmination of everything she's done in a lot of ways. And it's just slightly a readjustment. There's just a sense of the veil being pulled back just a little bit and a little bit less of, yeah, a little bit less archness, um, as you were saying. And also also a, a shift in position from um, a body of work in which she's often explored the kind of connection between uh, sort of femininity, femininity and, and victimhood or masochism in some cases. And, you know, that all of that's still there, but it's differently, it's not glamorized in the same way. And it's also, there's a maturity the way that she's coming at it now, where even though she can sometimes play up her own uh, vulnerability and faults, there's a new sense of control in her relationship to the relationships that she's discussing on the album um, there's there's a wisdom and a sense of a little bit of of distance and and um, and criticalness to it that feels um, feels like quite an evolution from uh, where she was a couple of albums ago. But there's it's also just the arrangements on this record, which was made with Jan, Jack Antonov, um, who also produced much of Taylor Swift's album. Um, there's a space for what she's doing here. It's not cluttered up in the same way that some of her earlier tracks would be it's not as gauzy there's a yeah and just the whole you know it's a long album it's over an hour long and yet it passes without really 
ever becoming tedious, which is always my problem with previous Lana Del Rey albums. Since I always liked lots of them, but then felt like the whole thing kind of bogged down. But there's something is really different about this record. I want to phrase this without being snide, because I feel like Lana Del Rey has been very mistreated by the media in the past. And that, you know, when we first talked about her years ago, there's no question that everything she did, everything she came out with was immediately put through this kind of sexist ringer before anyone actually listened to it. But I disagree with Carl that this album never gets tedious. (laughs) I did feel its length. And although it had some high points, I felt that the continuous down-tempo sameness of many of the songs melodically and lyrically uh, made it somewhat of a, of a hard listen. I mean, there's something about her citationality. I have a little box here. I scribbled this on a box because it was the nearest thing in my house. Here is a box of lists of song titles that are directly quoted, like sometimes just taken as her own title in this album. Cinnamon Girl, right? Neil Young's song. California Dreamin', uh, Gin and Juice, the Snoop Dogg song. Girls Just Want to Have Fun, Nothing Compares to You. Also, that line is just simply taken and used over and over in a song. Candle in the Wind, the Elton John song. Life on Mars, the Beach Boys' Kokomo. Leonard Cohen's I'm Your Man. I'm sure that's only a partial list. And that's not Crimson songs and that are reference. Crimson and Clover is the actual words are in there? Yeah. No, yeah, I, I missed that one. Yeah, and I'm sure there's countless more like hip hop songs I don't know and other references I didn't get. But I mean, those are just like sheer lifts from other songs. I know about sampling. I know that all music is constructed from other music. But there are moments when I feel like her big lyrical crutch is just to evoke a whole musical pop world of the past by taking a line from an earlier song. That particularly bothered me with the the Prince line, nothing compares to you. I think she slightly changes it to nobody compares to you or something. But it isn't just used once. It's like the chorus of the entire song. So there are just a lot of moments when I felt this was a lyrically underachieving album. But this could also be my own personal taste. Is It's that that style of vocals, that this kind of breathy, dreamy, um, meandering, ambient music with a, with a female vocal, like, I think it's in the tradition, I'm just going to throw out things that I think it's in the tradition of, like Cowboy Junkies or Mazzy Star or Air, right? That kind of ambient music has never appealed to me, and that's just maybe a taste thing. I like, I like melodies that have a little bit more... Um, you know, movement as they move through the song. And in particular, is it Venice Bitch, Carl? That's the really long song. That's the almost 10 minute long Mm -hmm. song. Right. So it's this long song, but it is breathy and meandering. And yes, there's some sort of proggy, squiggly guitar sounds in there. But it's not like a Joanna Newsom long song, right, that has that changes time signatures and, you know, moves through this whole symphonic development and has different chapters. It really is just a very long, breathy song of a woman, you know, moaning about her relationship. And again, I don't want to be snide because I think Lana Del Rey has lots of talent. But when I started reading like the Pitchfork review that talks about her as, you know, one of the great songwriters of her generation, I was thinking, can we set the bar a little higher than that? You know, like there's also a lot of soft rhymes, I guess you'd call them, rhymes that rhyme only because the the vowel in the word is the same as the other word. And uh, again, that's something that every song contains. But if that's the only thing you rely on, I don't know. I guess I sort of felt like I wanted the writing to be taken to the next level. Whoa. Yeah. I mean, I think I think you've sort of gathered together a, a lot of the criticisms that don't fall into the she's some kind of phony femme fatale sexist line that she got directed at her early on. But yeah, a lot those that set of critiques of the writing, I go back and forth. You know, as a music 
critic and fan, that referentiality is a little bit like popcorn to me. Like <laughs> I can't help enjoying it. But I also feel like it's, you know, she's sort of a, she's a mood artist. She's kind of a collage artist in a lot of ways, in a way that I do think comes out of hip hop. And, you know, she's not, even though a lot of her manner and style references and sometimes you know, or very frequently directly references the kind of singer songwriter tradition of, you know, Laurel Canyon in the seventies and all of that. And she definitely does sort of worship at Joni Mitchell's altar and all that kind of thing. At the same time, she translates it into a very 21st century thing that really does have a different set of yardsticks. And from song to song, I can go back and forth on whether I find that satisfying or dissatisfying, but I do think it's, with a consistency that feels, I think it, I think it feels wrong to call lazy, and seems much more deliberate and of a sensibility to me. Yeah, it seems to me, Carl, that the songs are about being belated and feeling recycled and feeling as though one's surrounded by you know things that are recycled, and you're out of these inherited elements. You're trying to assemble them in order to produce some last tiny shred of like authenticity and feeling or that seems to me the struggle at the heart of the music julia break the tie here what do you think oh i love seeing dana on a hypercritical tear dana dana comes back from the prairie with teeth <laughs> um but wait, let me just say that the mood, the mood is something that I like. I don't at all object to the languid film noir kind of mood. It's almost mood like a mood board or something. And I, I'm into Lana's mood board. I just think her writing's a little weak. Yeah, I I like this album a lot. I mean, I think like you, Dana, this vibe is not my taste in music. Like I don't do a lot of like out loud meandery uh sinking into quietude music listening like i like i buy there's a reason it's the summer strut playlist and not the summer wallow playlist um and you know there's like J- jody avergan the podcaster tweets every weekend morning like what's the first piece of music you listen to this morning and i never feel more alienated on the internet than when i see that i'm like who are you who listens to music first thing in the morning like what is this and then all these people merrily respond and i just think wow people's relationship with music is very different than mine but i think i'm more in the carl and steve camp in that the referentiality here seems like a strength and not a weakness and that's sort of applying that sense of trying to encompass and address what's come before and figure out how that might apply to trying to be a person in life in the world right now. And that trying to be a person in life in the world right now actually requires a command of performance as a thing, like performing selfhood is a thing that is asked of modern people. And so she's playing with her own presentation and playing with her position with regard to other people who've been in similar positions. It feels very sophisticated to me. Um, And I really liked the album and I liked listening to it. I I don't know that I will continue to have it on repeat for the rest of my days, just because it's not what I typically use music for. But I think I fall more in the camp that the writing is actually sophisticated. Now, let me weigh in a little bit on the doubting side there, because, you know, I was feeling exactly that, that, that respecting her sophistication and self-awareness. And then uh, something happened last week that really threw me off and in some ways made it hard for at least a few days for me to listen to the record at all, which is that um, Ann Powers, the 
chief music critic at NPR, published a long, like, 3,000, 4,000 word essay about the album. It was really fascinating and and excavating it for all its kind of cultural resonances. And um, Lana lashed out at her for it on Twitter, um, very much seeming like she just didn't understand the piece and um, and resultantly kind of sicked her fans on uh, on and powers and who then came back with like you know quasi death threats and you're canceled and you're fired and all of this kind of thing and it, it was really ugly and unpleasant and really took me aback about the question of how much Lena Del Rey is in command of um, exactly what she's doing and 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 whether the effects of what she's doing are deliberate or accidental, all of those questions kind of came up again in the wake of that. I mean, you know, it's it's understandable for somebody who, like, the beginning of her career got a great deal of um, uncharitable and, um, frankly, like, paranoid and, and sneering responses, mostly from, like, boys in the music blogosphere of the time. Um, and I think she might have just been re- reacting out of that set of instincts built up in that um, in that time. But, you know, at one point in her tweets, she, she claimed, I have no persona. I've never had a persona. I never needed one, which seems like an insane thing for any performing artist to say, much less somebody <laughs> with a layered persona that Lana Del Rey has. And so that sort of shook my confidence in my understanding of her sophistication, even though musicians are often not their best own, their own best advocates. But yeah, that, that was an unpleasant, that was an unpleasant thing to witness. I didn't know about that. And that is particularly striking because after reading Anne's piece, which I read before having listened, at least thoroughly listened to the album, uh, I, I thought, wow, I can't wait to hear this album. It sounds like it has so much richness and so many contradictions. And this is an incredible piece of writing. And I mean, I feel like Anne's review far outstripped the album itself in terms of the, uh, you know, the the care put into its wording and phrasing and and nuance. And again, this is not me trashing the record. I listened to it several times and enjoyed several songs. And I'll specifically shout out, I think the best song on the album is How to Disappear, which is maybe the least um, adherent to the model that I was just describing. It's not big and long and sprawling, although it could still be 20 seconds shorter, in my opinion. But it's, uh, you know, it's more of a song about one precise feeling and uh, and not such a, a meander. Joe met me down at the training yard Cuts on his face cause he fought too hard And now he's an over his head But I love that man like nobody can He moves mountains and pounds them to ground again I watch the guys getting high as they fight for the things that they hold dear To forget the things they fear This is how to disappear uh, Carl, one thing I can't help noticing is that the same person, as you mentioned, Jack Antonoff, produced both this and the Taylor Swift record, Did probably didn't do it at the same time, but they came out simultaneously. So, you know, some kind of compare and contrast here. It's like kind of a taste test, like what's the Antonoff commonality between the records? It's interesting. I More than, you know, Jack Antonoff has also produced a bunch of people, but Lord would be another sort of prominent female singer-songwriter um, in his in his set of, of um, collaborations. And 
sometimes I get a little wary of feeling like there's a signature Jack Antonoff sound, which is kind of a, a pulsing synth bass that propels things and then like some kind of arty ornament around and all this thing. The interesting thing about this record to me is that it doesn't have a lot of those signature Jack Antonoff touches and it seemed like he really knew that this was a different kind of project. Um, and what it what distinguishes the sound of this record from most of Lana Del Rey's previous records to me is um, there's a lot of just piano um, along with the sort of orchestral pop things that she usually does. And the piano really grounds a lot of the record and, and plays off of her voice in a more, you know, to use the obvious word, organic way than um, a lot of the things that people have tried on her previous records, the sort of like guitar synth strings effect that's usually been there and people sort of trying out various forms of like trap beats and all of that kind of thing. She, this this steers a little bit away from that and does go for a little bit more of that Laurel Canyon sound or, or sort of 60s Baroque pop sound, as well as a sort of 90s like Tori Amos, Fiona Apple kind of thing. And it really it really just creates some room for her to have a little more nuance in what she's doing and it makes the whole thing breathe better. Um, so to me, it's an impressive Jack Antonoff record in the sense that it, it feels like he doesn't go into automatic pilot at all, but, um, but really has, has met her one-on-one -on -one and thought about what the songs needed on that level. And there's a couple of moments where she's, she kind of pushes back against that, kind of sad girl image that she cultivated for the first while you, where she like, you know, in the second track, which is one of my favorites, uh, Mariner's apartment complex. It starts with her saying, um, you took my sadness out of context by the Mariner's apartment complex. And so something like I'm not a candle in the wind, you know, all there is a, there is an adjustment of that image, I think happening on this record. Mm -hmm. uh, Carl, that's my favorite uh, track on the record. Why don't we go out on that? And uh, thanks, thanks for coming in to explicate. As always, a total pleasure. Thank you. So, kiss the sky and whisper to Jesus. My my my, you found this in needless. Take a deep breath, baby, let me in. You lose your way, just take my. Dana, um, how long were you gone for? It was just short of a month. I think including the two travel days, it was 27 days. And um, where the fuck were you? <laughs> Glad <laughs> the, the sisters are listening. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. Okay, okay, okay. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. They, don't, they probably won't and they wouldn't care. I was at St. Gertrude's Monastery in Cottonwood, Idaho, in uh, northern Idaho. It's about four hours north of Boise. At what led this monastery and these uh, sisters to create a writer's retreat? 
You know, it's actually a pretty recent thing. They've had this program of an artist residency for about five years. And I think during a couple of those years, they took the years off because they had other things going on. So I think there's maybe only been three years or so with a gap in between that they've been doing this model and they're still trying to figure it out. So um, so me and the other, there was only one other artist resident while I was there. There was one who left just as I was coming in, a painter who showed her work on her last night, which is part of the residency. You sort of show what you've been up to. I think most residencies have that element. That was my first night. So I saw this painter take off and then me and this one other writer um, you know, continued to share the residency living space, which is in part shared with the space that the sisters live in and in part not. They have their private spaces, but there were two of them on the floor that we shared um, the whole rest of the time we were there. Then on our last two nights, we presented our work. And uh, I don't think for the moment anyone's replacing us because this monastery is a pretty busy place. We happened to be there in the quiet month of August, which I think is part of why they did the residency in August. But um, but they had, you know, a, a choir of college kids coming in that was like 70 guests that was going to come the night after I left. And they have sort of a lot of people going in and out, especially for such a remote place. I mean, they're even for rural Idaho, very remote. Um, The town nearest to them, Cottonwood, which is about a mile or two away, has a population of 900. So it's a really, really tiny town. And uh, so really, the monastery is one of the, the hubs of the town. In fact, the one hip coffee shop, I think the one coffee shop in Cottonwood, is called the habit uh, after the the monastery and you know has a sort of monastery theme with a painting of a nun on the wall and i think one of the main tourist sites of that area is this monastery which is this gorgeous building that's been there since 1924 and get into the building in a minute well also it's a it's a wonderful double entendre right yeah, the habit exactly. Not all habits are bad. Is the cafe's tagline? Um, <laughs> shout out to the to that place, which gave me the best coffee I had in Idaho. But that got way out there. Let me get back to why they decided to have this artist residency. I mean, according to the sister who was sort of my contact, I think of her as like the scarecrow in The Wizard of Oz, (laughs) Sister Teresa, who was the person who interviewed me in the first place before I ever came, who picked me up at the airport, who drove me back to the airport, who was sort of my liaison, you know, between the, the monastery and the residency. According to her, I mean, it is, among other things, a way to just bring new voices into their community. You know, I mean, these are people who have lived with each other in many cases for decades. And as she kind of dryly put it on our drive from the airport, you know, how how many times can we ask each other about the weather? We know all each other's stories, you know. So I think they just are intellectually curious and like to have people around that are doing different things. And in both cases, my presentation, which I'll get into later, and the presentation of the other writer that was staying at the same time, uh, was something that the sisters were and the priest who lives there too were really interested in. Just it was very well attended. Lots of questions. You know, people came up to me the day afterwards, and we're still wanting to talk about Buster Keaton and my book and being a film critic. And you know, I think it's just a way of bringing the world into this place that is not cut off from the world because, as I said, they have a lot going on, and a lot of them also work out in the world. Is teachers, nurses, etc. But, um, you know, kind of giving a goose to their intellectual life. So talk a little bit about why someone goes on a writer's retreat. I mean, for me, I had been craving to go on one ever since I started doing this book. And uh, it, it made me think a lot about why I had wanted it once I got there on the retreat, because, of course, of that, you know, cliched but very true saying you can't get away from yourself right and the fantasy that there is some other place where you'll be able to work in this pure way and that's not a pure fantasy I did get a lot done while I was there but it wasn't insanely more than I would have gotten done on a, in a very productive uh, three and a half week period 
at home. The, the question is, what makes you have a very productive period of time in your life, right? I mean, is it just, was it the knowledge that I was there, so I had better use that time appropriately? Uh, I don't, I mean, that whole mystery of what makes for a good creative day is not necessarily solved by being at a retreat. But what the big fantasy was for me, honestly, had to do with escaping domestic duties and interruptions and having someone else make my food for me and decide what it was going to be, that was an important part of a residency. In fact, when I was researching different ones that were available, there's some that work by more sort of a group house logic where, you know, a bunch of residents shop for and cook meals together and they all sit down and eat together. And And I knew people who had done residencies like that and gotten a lot out of them, but that really wasn't what I wanted. And I could imagine myself, since part of my problem not being able to get work done at home is that I'm not great at drawing boundaries. And, you know, if somebody needs me for something or, you know, a conversation is interesting or a meal is fun to cook and eat. So part of it for me is that I really did want those decisions of daily life just taken away. And at first I had fantasized about a place like, uh, I, I believe that the big prestigious writing residencies like Yaddo or, or the Malay Colony or McDowell do this, or at least sometimes do it as an option, is that they make you your meal and bring it to you. So you have this little cabin and, you know, just this boxed lunch shows up on your doorstep at some point during the day. That kind of fantasy was very powerful for me that I wouldn't have to make any decisions about food. At the monastery, it was different. It was more, you know, buffet style cafeteria that you go to three set times during the day, which are pretty narrow windows, like you really have to get there or you're going to miss the meal entirely. Um, but that was good enough for me. It completely took care of all those questions. I didn't have to think about them. My only domestic responsibility there is that they ask the residents to help with dishes after um, dinner, as they call lunch in a very little house on the prairie, sort of Midwestern way. They have <laughs> breakfast, dinner, and then supper. And dinner is sort of the main meal of the day, as it used to be in old farm families. Um, so after dinner and supper, Heather and I, the other resident and I, had to help with the dishes, which was very fun. It was really the only social part of our day is that we would, you know, get these dishes out of an industrial washer and put them away in this huge industrial kitchen and sort of chat about how our writing was going. But other than that, I just had to sit at my desk and work all day. I could, if I wanted, go to any of the religious services they do. They have morning prayer, evening prayer, and they have mass every day. I only went to mass twice because I'm not Catholic and it takes a long time and I just needed to use that time. But I did, when I could, try to go to either morning or evening prayer every day because when else are you going to get to have that experience? I mean, it's, it's, it's a pretty extraordinary experience to pray in these kind of choir stalls and, you know, with these women who whose job, essentially, I mean, they all have jobs helping to run the monastery or doing things outside of it, but their real work is prayer, you know, and that to me, whether or not you even believe in God is just such a, a beautiful concept. So here's my question to you. You've been writing this book. You've been thinking about what kind of place you might want to go to. You've done some research. You've applied. You've been accepted. You sit down and like, is it not terrible? <laughs> not not to be at a beautiful monastery in, in a remote and beautiful part of Idaho, but like just the sheer, now I will do it all. Now I will do all the things. I mean, I feel like in my <laughs> own, not particularly prayerful, not trying to write a book, life full of things I'm trying to accomplish. I both yearn for the like uninterrupted blank slate of time and also, um, you never get as much done as you think you will. I mean, I had my version of this was when my husband and I were living across the country from one another and the children would be with him for a week every so often. I would sometimes have an utterly solitary weekend alone in our apartment in New York. And man, those were great. I loved those. But also, man, the notions I had at the beginning of those weekends of how much would be done by the end of those weekends was just like 
a heap, you know, a hundred stones high, and then I would like move four of them to 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 wherever they were supposed to go, because of the sort of insanity of the ambition or the idea of how much you could accomplish if you were not bothered with mundane domestic tasks. You know that I love. Hi, family, love you. Um, but uh, like, was it not terrifying? Did your yeah. did your did your progress and your ambitions um, find themselves at odds in ways that stressed you out? Yeah, lots of days. I mean, there was there was a day of despair. <laughs> it was probably close to halfway in where I just counted all the words that I'd written while there. And at that point, especially, they were just not that many words. I, I think at that point, I, had, I still remember the number, and it was painful. It was 5,558 or something. It was short of 6,000. And uh, and that just seemed pitifully small because my plan had been, all right, a 1,000 words a day. Uh, but, you know, I think I just... I had to come to terms with the fact that I was not going to finish the manuscript. I think Steve made some allusion to that at the beginning. That's definitely a hardy har concept. In the end, I think I wrote something like 25 pages, which does come out to a page a day. And by that, I mean book pages, you know, like having converted them into what they might actually be in a, a printed book someday, not in the Word document that I'm typing in. And a page a day is not terrible, but yeah, I mean, there was some there was some real grappling with the fact that wherever you go, there you are, you know, that there are still interruptions of all kinds that come up. You know, I had podcasts that published and I think a review that published. I had a correction to write. You know, I still had slate things that dogged me for the first week or so. Uh, it took me probably three or four days to really start writing anything at all because it was sort of, you know, I've got to figure out the space here, this big labyrinth and building I live in. How do I find my way to the kitchen? Where should my office be? There were so many cozy nooks to choose from in that place. What the building actually reminded me of, and you two will relate to this, I, I hope maybe some of our listeners might as well, but was Mohonk Mountain House, the big old Quaker retreat where, where Slate used to have its, its, uh, its yearly work retreats. I mean, it wasn't quite as uh, luxurious. No, that's not really even the word for Mohonk. But I mean, it wasn't quite as nice as Mohonk. But it was. It had that similar labyrinthine sort of factor where everywhere you looked, there was some musty nook with a bookshelf and an old wing chair with a kind of crusty doily over the top. You know, that kind of Mohonk feeling. <laughs> and like sepia-toned print on the wall next to it. Can this be the crusty doily? The crusty doily edition. <laughs> Well, because they're Benedictines, they never get rid of anything. So there were so many old objects in this place that were absolutely fascinating. If you follow me on Instagram at the high sign, you can see me post some of these. But they had an old bookbinding machine that looked like it was at least 100 years old, possibly older, that's still in use for bookbinding by one of the sisters. They had, you know, old iron stoves that looked like they were straight out of Ma and Pa's cabin in Little House on the Prairie. And uh, and just saints. And, you know, I love that kind of Catholic art. Just I love me a polychrome painted saint with some, you know, holding some sort of implement that signifies who the saint was. And those things were everywhere. Um, so I was I was in heaven. Dana, what do you mean by final presentation? I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall for that one. Um, that was really unexpectedly to me was one of the really joyous moments. I, that wasn't something I was particularly looking forward to because I don't love public speaking. And especially because two nights before had been the presentation, the final presentation of my co-resident, Heather King, who part of what she does in her life besides write is speaking engagements. And she's really, really good at holding a room. And uh, she gave this talk about just her own history with her faith, unlike me, she is Catholic, and with addiction and, you know, sort of how faith and recovery relate. And 
and it was so beautiful. It had a room full of nuns in tears, plus me. So there was a high bar to meet when I did my presentation. So I just tried to do the opposite. And what I chose to do was to uh, to show a Buster Keaton short, a 20-minute two-reeler called One Week, which we've talked about before, Steve, the great 1920 classic, One Week, where Buster and his new bride build a house together from a portable house kit. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, just one of the all-time, you know, truly great cinematic classics. Absolutely. Yeah. And I had chosen that one because a lot of them, as I discovered over the course of my month there, didn't know who Buster Keaton was, or some of them had a vague sense. Some of them knew exactly who he was. Some of the younger ones who, you know, were maybe more cosmopolitan. But, you know, there are some women at this monastery who have been there since pre-Vatican II days when, you know, you could send your teenager to a monastery. In fact, there were two nuns there, probably in their late 70s, who were first cousins in, you know, their regular lives, both from small towns near the monastery in Idaho, who both entered the monastery when they were 13, right? So that would have been during the time when no one was talking about silent film or Keaton or anything like that at all. They they were just a little bit too young to have, you know, to have gone to those movies as kids and then proceeded to be in a place that was pretty cut off from popular culture. So when, you know, he started to be revived in the 50s, 60s, and silent film started to come back as something people talked about, that would certainly not be anything that they were aware of, right? So I knew that I had this big responsibility, like this might be the one time in their life that, you know, some of these people are going to see a Buster Keaton movie. So that really made me feel the weight of my, um, you know, my role as an ambassador for this great artist who I, who I, whose name I want to keep alive. Not that, you know, you, his na- name is in any danger of disappearing in most places, but in this monastery it was, right? Um, so I chose one week because I knew it was just such a crowd pleaser that everyone would laugh at it. And sure enough, it was just such a pleasure. It took a while to figure out the tech because they hadn't used this giant TV they had in a long time. A TV, by the way, which one of the nuns won in a raffle. I loved that detail. That was why they had a huge, probably 70-inch TV or something. Um, But once I got one week rolling, it was just laughs in all the right places, you know, infectious giggles running through the room. The priest in particular, who was a pretty reserved guy and really not one of the more talkative or laughy people there, was just really cracking up at the movie, which made me very happy. And uh, they had, as I said earlier, lots of questions and comments about it afterwards. And then a wonderful moment just to end the story is that the next day at lunch, or dinner, as they call it, I happened to sit at a table with the priest. um, And he immediately mentioned the movie and how much he enjoyed it. And we talked about that for a while. And then the subject changed. And, you know, the everybody at the table had drifted to some different subject. And suddenly, out of the blue, the priest just starts chuckling to himself. And I knew, I just knew it was something from one week. I said, what are you laughing at? He said, oh, when that train destroys that house at the end, it's just so good. <laughs> and he was remembering the final gag of the movie, and it made me so happy just to think that it was 99 years since that movie came out, right? It's a 1920 film, and that there was a octogenarian priest who was just sitting there still laughing at the final gag. All right, well, Dana was on a retreat in a nunnery that was kind of amazing to hear about uh excellent all right now is the moment we um endorse dana what do you have I'm going to endorse something related to our third segment and related to my stay at the monastery, which is that the Monastery of St. Gertrude's has a podcast. That's how modern they are. They have a podcast which has only existed for about six months, I think. There aren't that many episodes of it yet because I think it's created in a somewhat spotty manner. Uh, But it is so worth listening to if you really want a sense of, you know, the place and the people um, at this very unusual, you know, just the kind of place that is disappearing from the world. Um, 
then go to, you can find it on iTunes or you can find it on uh, stgertrudes.org, which is their website. And um, yeah, some of them, it's all interviews with uh, some with the sisters, one with the, the, the priest who's there, your one male buddy, Steve, if you were to get the residency yourself, <laughs> you guys can pal around. And also just some people who work around the monastery, like this guy, Frank, there's a fascinating story of this, you know, guy who sort of showed up to volunteer and never went away and became a fixture at the monastery for a while, although he was not there when I was there. Um, but yeah, the Monastery of St. Gertrude podcast, that's my endorsement for the week. And also, if you want some visuals to go along with it, go to my Instagram, because I'm going to be posting many of the hundreds of pictures I took while there. Everything was so beautiful, the landscape, the prairie, the pines, the building, the art. Uh, so if you want to have some illustrations while you listen, go to my Instagram at the high sign. Love it. Julia, what do you have? I would like to endorse the parlor game this week. Uh, no doubt many of our listeners are familiar with the game Dictionary, where uh, you haul out the dusty old dictionary and pick an arcane word, and then everybody has to make up definitions and put them in a hat, and then one person writes down the real definition, and everybody has to guess. Fun game. Endorse that game. But my endorsement today is an evolution of that game that has caused me to laugh probably, you know, top five laughing fits of 2019, um, which is that you do essentially the same game, but with fiction. You pick a novel. This is very uh, a good game to play if you're like at uh, a house full of old nooks and crannies with old books that were not thrown away by Benedictine nuns or anybody else. Um, you find some kind of crusty old tome and you read the title, author's name, and jacket copy, and then everybody has to write the first sentence of the novel, and you have to compare the real first sentence to the hypothetical first sentences. Um, and I enjoyed a truly hysterical round of this with uh, my book club, my dear dearly departed, or I am the dearly departed of my New York book club, and we gathered in the spring and played it and really have not laughed so hard in so long. Um, and so anyway, if you're looking for a parlor game twist, maybe it's uh, tragic to endorse this at the end of summer when people no longer go to summer houses with great troves of old books uh, and are back to it. But um, I think that there are probably some among our readership who would enjoy this game. Does it have a name? Uh, no, I don't know. I like nameless games. All my favorite games are nameless. Fic fictionary? I'm not sure. Yeah. Nameless first sentence game. Order! <laughs> Order! Oh, God. Have you, not been, have you not been following the Jonathan Burkow saga in, in England? I have not. Please tell me about it. I'm an entertainment journalist now. I've not been following anything. Well, then you're my ideal audience for this endorsement, which is, I like many people, you know, the general outlines of Brexit are fairly clear to me. Uh, I understand that England is now on the United States model, a complete shit show, having elevated Boris Johnson, this complete, utter poltroon to the prime ministership, um, and are in the process of, you know, sort of tearing everything down in this nihilistic way um, uh, that uh, we're doing now here now under Trump. But the, the specifics of it seem to me both important and yet arcane and somewhat hard to master quickly. I haven't really done it. By the way, Order Order was Burkout, the the essentially the speaker of the House of Commons, um, who's been desperately trying to discipline his ranks um as if they're, you know, uh fractious toddlers, which is effectively what they've become, and he's become a viral sensation anyway. 
coincident to that is um, a, a, an essay in the New York Review of Books called Fools Rush Out, one of the truly great headlines um, by Jonathan Friedland that so concisely and so elegantly explains Brexit, where it's at now, what generated it, uh, what the stakes are, what the various permutations are. It is so, in fact, let me quote that very sentence. Hold on there, people. The geometry of all of this is mind-numbing, a series of irresistible forces colliding with immovable objects, turning not on questions of trade and commerce, but intractable matters of identity. The consequence is that no arrangement has yet been found that is, accept that is acceptable to unionists, Brexiters, Dublin, and Brussels. Uh, on and on and on. Anyway, it, it, it's really quite well done um, in its own sort of... Uh, lucid and low pulse way it's 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 really worth reading and will bring you up to speed in ways you'll be grateful for anyway dana welcome back that was really really fun to have you back oh i'm so happy to be back julia thank you so much hi yay thanks bye <laughs> <laughs> you'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page that's slate.com slash culture fest you can email us we i say this every week i really mean it we we cherish your emails uh, you can email us at culturefest at slate.com. We have a Twitter feed. It's at Slate Cult Fest. Interact with us there. Um, our producer is Benjamin Frisch. Our production assistant is Cleo Levin. For Dana Stevens and Julia Turner, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us, and we will see you soon. Here's a sneak peek at this week's Slate Plus segment. If you want to hear the whole thing, plus ad-free podcasts, join us at slate.com slash culture plus. I finally have an excuse to say this, but it's been my lifelong dream to go to the, you know, go to Norfolk Island. But failing that, my other lifelong dream is to have our show downloaded by someone in on Norfolk Island. Um, so if someone knows, it's not going to be, I'm sure no one on Norfolk Island right now is listening to this show. But if you know someone who knows someone who knows someone, get it to them, have them <laughs> download it and email us and you will make my decade.